turn to the book of Luke, chapter 6. We'll be looking at verses 12 through 16 today. Well, can you believe it's March? You know, it hardly seems uh, like it should be March yet. Time flies, you know, doesn't it? Well, you know what March means. That is, if you're a college basketball fan. March means March Madness. It's the time of the year that people who enjoy college basketball go nuts because it's uh, the, all, all the teams in the NC2A trying to vie for that national championship. You know, over the years, coaches and media uh, representatives, uh, radio talk show hosts, you could see the ESPN guys or listen to them talk about dream teams. Uh, and, you know, I, I actually played basketball in high school, and uh, it's interesting, you know, you watch things like all-star games, which are fun to watch, but really, if, you've ever, if you know anything about basketball, they're really kind of just shootouts. It's just guys showing off. Nobody plays defense. But in 1992, we really got to see a true dream team. You see, the International Olympic Committee decided to finally allow NBA basketball players who were professionals here in the U.S. to compete on the Olympic team. And, of course, the irony of that is that basketball players from other countries in Europe and the Soviet bloc at that time were all being paid under the table anyway. So it wasn't fair to begin with. But when this team came out, and those of you who are old enough to remember will know this, this team was truly awesome. You know, you had the likes of Larry Bird, Michael Jordan, Magic Johnson, just to name a few on the Olympic dream team for the U.S. And to say that they were awesome would be almost an understatement. I Googled it this week just to see, and if you're under 25 and you're thinking, no, they couldn't be better than LeBron, just YouTube that one. Go watch that, the, some of those games from that day. The average amount of points that they won their games by during that Olympics 42. In fact, I can remember watching some teams that they were playing and they literally just stopped playing in the middle of the game. Just to, they were so in awe of how good these guys were that they just stood there. Later, after the game, they went up and got their autograph. No, it's true. But you know, it got me thinking, if God were to have a dream team, who would be on it? Who would he select? Surely he would select the cream of the crop the top of all time. Let's look at this passage together and see the names of these people by, by individual. Let's, let's look at this together. Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 12. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Simon, whom he renamed Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Who were these people? It's really just a list of names. And yet this ragtag motley crew of people were so changed by Jesus Christ in the three, maybe three and a half years that they spent with him on the earth that the book of Acts tells us that they literally turned the world upside down. How did they do that? It's interesting. 
Some of you today may feel like you could never make a difference for God, that you would never be invited, much less stand a chance to be a player on God's team, but that isn't true. God wants you to be on his team, his family, the church, and he wants you to become a change agent, a world changer in your world and in mine. You know, despite the significant limitations that these men had, they made a difference. And I believe that as we find out and practice the same things that these guys were committed to, we can, in fact, make a difference in our world, too. There's a simple outline in your bulletin. I want you to turn there, if you would. Let's look together at some of the areas of commitment that we need to have if we want to make a difference in our world. First one is this. They were committed to loving Jesus and each other. You know, the main reason that these 12 men left everything to follow Jesus is because their hearts had been captured by his love. They didn't, I'm sure, know how to articulate it super well. But when they left everything, it wasn't, I think, a purely, like a super easy decision. Some of these men were pretty successful. Take uh, Simon Peter and uh, Andrew, his brother. These guys were successful, established fishermen. The apostle John was, came from a very uh, influential, a well-known family, well-respected family. Matthew, the tax collector, uh, left a very lucrative career. He was on an upwardly mobile uh, angle, and he walked away from it. But why? First and foremost, because they had all been, they had all experienced, excuse me, the love of Christ, and it changed him. You know, the core characteristic of a member of God's team, that is his family, is love. You know, if you're on a sports team, you got to like the coach. Meaning, if you don't get along with the coach, you're not going to go very far, are you? You can fake love for a while, can't you? But not for very long. This is why it's so vital to remember that when Jesus called these men, Mark's gospel tells us that he called them to be with him. They actually liked to hang out together. The Bible says that as we abide in him, that is Jesus, we'll be in a position to be influenced by him and thus to make a difference for him. But you know, they didn't only have a commitment to loving Jesus, they had a commitment to loving each other too. It's interesting, the book of Acts chapter 13 verse 31 tells us that really the only thing that they actually had in common was that they were all from the same general area, the area known as Galilee. But take a look at who these people were. Just their nicknames alone are interesting. First, you've got this guy, Simon the Zealot, okay? Do you know what a zealot was? It's really, a, in the definition I, I looked up this week, is a fanatic nationalist. You know what an easier term to remember? He was a terrorist. 
He was determined to overthrow Rome, the, who was occupying Israel at that time, in a violent manner. And he felt justified in doing so. So you got this guy who's, shall we say, a little hot-headed. And then you've got Matthew, the tax collector, who, by the way, government job, right? Don't get paid that much. So what do you do if you're a government worker in those days? All right? They had no unions, okay? What he did was he basically, when people came to collect their taxes, he took the tax and whatever else he could get them to pay, it was just extortion, really. That's how he made his living. He had sold out. He was a trader, a turncoat. And yet Jesus said, you two guys need to get along together. Peter was an impulsive, kind of a loudmouth guy, a leader for sure. He had foot and mouth disease. He'd say just about anything that came to his mind. Yet you've got his brother, the lesser known brother of, of Peter, Andrew. You don't really hear much about this guy, but what you do know is this guy was always out there quietly bringing people to Jesus. You've got two other guys, Thomas, Philip. Thomas, of course, well known for his kind of natural skepticism. He wasn't just going to believe something just because you told him that. Philip was the guy that, you know, when they needed to feed 5,000 people, he was trying to figure out how they were going to do it on five loaves and two fish. I think it must have been an administrator. What do you think? <laughs> got these pragmatic guys trying to think things through. And then you've got these other guys, two brothers, James and John, known as the Sons of Thunder. Now, you don't get that kind of a nickname easily. In fact, Pastor Ron sent me this. <laughs> this, this is a T-shirt from a church in Franklin, Tennessee. And I, and I always have to think that if James and John had been living today, they would have had this T-shirt on. They would have been gnarly biker dudes all tatted up, okay, with honking choppers, you know, rolling up the sons of thunder. And yet they had to get along with these quiet, introspective types. We don't even know much about Bartholomew, also known as Nathaniel. We really, they must have been quiet behind the scenes, fellas. You see, on the surface, you, on the surface excuse me, you look at the selection of these men. And you think, this is a disaster waiting to happen. They had nothing in common. And yet, what happened? It was because of their mutual love for Jesus and their commitment to love one another that they were able to transcend their very, very different backgrounds and personalities. Now, there were times that Jesus had to, uh, shall we say, give these guys a course correction or two, a little attitude adjustment, okay? Sometimes Jesus downright scolded them for their attitudes, but they learned over time. They learned over time to love one another. And if they did, let me flip it around. If they didn't, they would not be effective. You know, if we really love Jesus, we're going to love one another. Listen to what the Apostle John, who, by the way, was one of the sons of thunder, later in his life was so transformed by Jesus that he became known as the apostle of love. Look at what he said in 1 John chapter 4. We love because he first loves us, loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen 
cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Listen, Jesus is the ultimate common denominator. He's the only one that can take people that had once been enemies that would have never hung out with each other before and transform them not just into friends, but into committed disciples and team players together. You know, as we commit ourselves, not only to loving Jesus, but to loving one another, we're going to find out that the world around us is going to sit up and take notice. This is what Jesus said on the night he was going to be betrayed. He said, a new command I give you, love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. But it wasn't just loving Jesus and one another that they were committed to. They were also committed to learning from Jesus. See, Jesus was different from any other person that ever lived. In fact, the, even his enemies, the people who did not care for him at all, had to admit that this man speaks differently than anyone we've ever heard. It was his teaching. It was the things he said that were astonishing. No one ever spoke like this man did before. It attracted them. People want, they couldn't get enough. This is why if we're going to be disciples of Jesus, we need to learn from him. You know, the word disciple really just means a student or a learner. These 12 had evidently distinguished themselves from others in that they were always hungry and thirsty for more. You know, Jesus made this clear when he said these famous words in Matthew chapter 11, beginning in verse 28. He said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Some of you feel like, yeah, you know, I'd really like to learn more about Jesus, but you don't know me. I was never a very good student. You know, the first time around, here now you're asking me. It makes you feel intimidated. But here's the thing. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. You know, when Jesus chose these men, keep in mind, too, that he didn't so much choose them for their ability. He chose them for their availability. That's what he chose them for. And and you you and I need to remember that God doesn't so much see you for who you are right now, but who you can become. That doesn't mean that God doesn't love you just the way you are. He does. He loves you just the way you are. But as one of my early mentors told me many, many years ago, yes, God loves you just the way you are, but he loves you too much to leave you that way. He wants to transform us from the inside out. And the best way to do that is to learn of him. Now, how do we do that? 
Well, there are lots of ways. We have so many opportunities, so many tools that we can use today to learn. Of course, you're here today listening to a sermon. That's great. Uh, There's Christian TV, Christian radio, Christian books, uh, Christian podcasts. All these things are, are excellent and great tools that we can use. But listen, if you want to learn of him, there's no substitute for studying the Bible on your own. I like the story that Christian leader and author Leroy Imes told some years ago. He and his family were traveling in Florida. They were going from Fort Lauderdale on the Atlantic side over to Tampa, which is on, on the Gulf of Mexico side. If you've ever driven through Florida and that part, of, that part of Florida, it's nothing but orange trees, as far as you can look. And he said as they were driving along, they, they had gotten up real early, packed the kids up in the station wagon of the van and gotten them going, and, the, and they were going to stop and get breakfast. And as they stopped at the little restaurant there to get some breakfast, uh, Dr. Rimes said, he ordered, uh, he thought, oh, it would be great, you know, just have some fresh OJ, you know, right with my breakfast here. I want to make sure and get that good fresh squeeze of Florida orange juice, right? Well, the waitress came up to him and said, I'm sorry, sir, we don't have any orange juice. And he said he did a, a, like a serious double take because he said, everywhere you could look, you could look out the windows for every, any direction. There were orange trees just loaded with fruit. He said he, it wasn't that they didn't have oranges. They even had orange slices garnished on the plates. What was the problem? He said to the lady, she said, oh, you know, our machine is broken. And he said later, he said, you know what's interesting? He said, that's what many Christians are like. It's not the lack of available spiritual nutrition. They just don't know how to get it for themselves. What if there was no church one day? What if you didn't, I mean, most of you have more than one Bible sitting on a shelf at home. What if there were no Podcasts. What if there were no internet web, you know, webcasts that you could watch? Would you be able to do your own digging? There's no substitute for that. Of course, if Jesus had lived in our day, we would have fully expected him to take full advantage of all the social media that we have, you know, the internet and, and all the different things that are out there. And eh, he might have. But it's interesting. At this time when he chose his people, None of them. Peter didn't have a Facebook page, okay? None of them had Instagram or Snapchat accounts, okay? They didn't tweet, all right? Now, it is true that Jesus did believe in FaceTime, not the Apple version, okay? He believed in real FaceTime. He wanted to spend time daily with these people and sink his life into theirs, and if that isn't a key for you and me, I don't know what is. You see, just as in Jesus' day, he still chooses to write his best messages on hearts. Because he knows that living letters are by far the most effective means of getting his message of love and hope to the needy world around us. Look at what the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 3. Speaking of the Corinthian church, he said, You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. 
we want to be his ambassadors, we need to love him and love each other. We need to learn from him. And finally, we need to live for him. You know, one of the biggest keys to a team's success is that they need to have a mutual commitment to the coach's philosophy and values. You know, the great coaches always take their players beyond their individual abilities and bring them into kind of a synergy, but that can only happen if they're committed to the same goals and values of the coach. See, once Jesus selected his dream team, he spent time going over the values, the philosophy that he had. And we're going to look at that uh, in the subsequent chapters that we'll study through here in the next couple of weeks. Why? Because Jesus had a revolutionary value system. In fact, he took most of the accepted thinking of that day and age and he flipped it. He flipped it right around. Because you see, his ultimate goal was and still is not so much to turn the world upside down, but to turn it right side up. That's what God wants to do. But in order to do that, in order to achieve that kind of a lofty goal, his apostles, his representatives had to buy into his goals 100.0%. You know, if you want to live for Jesus, you need to be equally committed to his goals, his values, his philosophy. Now, we're not his apostles, but the Bible does tell us that we're his ambassadors. Each and every one of us are ambassadors for Jesus. In order to represent him accurately in the topsy-turvy world that we live in today, we need to care about the same things that he does. Now, it's true. If we set our hearts and our minds on the things that God values, we'll probably experience some temporary unhappiness, some persecution. That's what Jesus told us. He said, you know, if the world hates you, don't be surprised. They hated me first. But you know, the love, the peace, the hope that we receive right now combined with the the value of what we're going to have one day, that eternal reward that we'll have when we see him one day is incredibly more, is more valuable than anything that this world could ever offer to us. You know, obtaining worthwhile goals is never easy, is it? When these men that agreed to play for the 1992 Olympic USA basketball team committed to do that, they actually gave up quite a bit. To play a whole NBA season and then not have any time off, not let your body recover, that's tough. There was a price to pay for those guys as well as the coaches who were willing to go with them. In fact, some of you remember that Michael Jordan actually burned out of basketball about a year later. He was so tired. And yet, You know, when you hear the words of somebody like Magic Johnson, 
who said this after he received his gold medal. He said, you know, nothing I've ever done can compare with how great it felt to represent my country in this way. You can tell that all that sacrifice, all that he gave up in order to have what he did was worth it. You know, when you say yes to Jesus, you also say no to other things. It's true. Some pleasures, some privileges. It could be a profit motive. You, you, know, uh, kind, you, you know, you can fill in the blank. It's true when you say yes to Jesus that you say no to other things. But to hear those words one day, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. I don't know about you. I'm looking forward to that one day. And that on top of the fact that in this life, when there comes that day, when we take our last breath, we can, in truth, sincerely know that we've done what we should have done. I don't think there's any substitute for that. You know, most of us here today will never be chosen for a dream team. None of us would qualify. We don't have the right stuff, I don't think. But you know what? You can be on God's team. Do you know the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, that he has chosen you before the foundations of the world. He chose you by name. He did that before time even began. He selected you. Some of you today feel like, I'm not so sure. If you knew me in my darker moments, Pastor Jerry, you wouldn't say that. But listen, I don't need to know. I just know that God has selected you. But here's the interesting thing. You still have to choose him. You still have to join his team, his family, the church. But you know, when you submit yourself to him, when you say, Jesus, I want you to be my leader, my coach. I want you to help me get to where I need to be. I want to be a player on your team. The Bible tells us he'll receive all who do that. You know, a human coach, no matter how good he is, can only bring players, even the best of players, to a certain level. John Wooden, the almost legendary basketball coach from uh, UCLA, maybe, I think, the winningest NC2A basketball coach of all time, if I'm not mistaken, who, by the way, if you didn't know, was a very fine Christian man. He's with the Lord now. But he once pointed that out. He said, you know, a human coach can only take you a certain distance. After that, <laughs> it's up to God. And he was right. But you know... As great coach as John Wooden or other coaches are today or in yesteryear, Jesus is not only committed to developing you to the potential that God gave you and wants you to achieve in your life, but he paid the price to make it possible for you to be on his team. He made it possible. 
In just a moment, I'm going to ask the ushers to bring the elements for the Lord's Supper. And you know, as we remember Christ, one of the things that I want to remind you of is that he died for you to make it possible for you to experience the life and the joy and the peace that he came to provide. 